Good morning, faith family. If you got a Bible, go to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. That's going to be our text this morning. We are bringing to a close uh, the series we've been doing the last few weeks called Movement. Uh, What we've been talking about the last few weeks is how a gospel movement begins with what? Move me. And we've been challenging ourselves to to make sure here at Berean that the gospel, that the good news of Jesus Christ is the most important thing of what we do. It's it's why we are together. And and I've been so encouraged. My heart is full this morning of just encouragement. I've talked with people just after the last service in the commons, and somebody came up and just shared, you know, what I love about Berean is we're just Jesus, 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 Jesus. That's what we're pointing people towards. That we, we are passionate about a person, not a method, not a tradition. We're passionate about the message of Jesus Christ and knowing Him. And so that's what this series has been about. But if you really want that to happen in your life, if you really want that to be what identifies us as a faith family, then it's going to be painful personally. It means moving the agenda of self out of the way. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you're visiting with us, we are so glad you're here. And I hope that through this series, you've been hearing my heart about what we're about. And we'd love to have you join us in this gospel movement. Let's look here at Luke chapter 9 as we look at one more text around this theme. Uh, Here in Luke 9, we're going to look at two verses this morning. Should be a very short sermon. What? You just sit there and believe that, all right? Let's stand for the reading of God's Word and look here at Luke chapter 9, verse 49 and 50. It says that John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Pray with me. God, teach us from your word now. There is so much in that simple phrase. Continue to form in us the right mindset we need and the right heart to really be a part of your work, your kingdom, your gospel ministry we ask to the glory of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Heidi was on cloud nine. She was so excited. Her and her fiance, Freddie, were anxiously anticipating their upcoming wedding. According to Heidi, she thought everything was fine, and it was. Till one day, she arrived at work turned on her computer and noticed she had an email in her inbox. The email was from her future mother-in-law. She saw that it was from her and she thought, oh, it's probably just something about the wedding, some kind of last-minute detail or something that we need to look at. But Heidi said that when she started reading the email, she got sick to her stomach. It's because her mother-in-law wrote, her future mother-in-law wrote the following, quote, It's high time somebody explained to you good manners. What a great way to start an email right there, all right? (laughs) 
Yours are obvious from their absence, and I feel sorry for you. Unfortunately for Freddie, he's fallen in love with you, and therefore I can't reason with him as how he might be able to help you. You want to be accepted by our family? I suggest you take some guidance with haste. For the sake of your own good, and for Freddie's sake and your involvement with our family, do something as soon as possible. Like when you're over at our house, don't mention what you will or will not eat unless you're allergic. Don't start eating before anybody else or take additional helpings unless you're given permission. Do not lie in bed until late morning when everybody else gets up early. You fall in line with the house norms. Oh, and make sure you write a handwritten thank you note. You have yet to thank me for the times you've stayed. And stop drawing attention to yourself. I mean, it's tragic that you have diabetes, but you're not the only person in the world who's diabetic. I know a few people with this condition. Never heard them discuss it. Oh, and I understand that your parents are unable to contribute to the wedding costs. Well, one might presume they would have saved over the years for their daughter's wedding. Maybe you should just lower your sights and have a wedding that's modest and befits your income You must be patting yourself on the back for having caught the most eligible young man. Well, I pity Freddie. Close quote. I don't know about you. But if I would have received that email, it would be on like Donkey Kong. Jack. (laughs) Listen, there is just enough, just enough, just enough unsanctified redneck left in me. I'd show you some bad manners. Oh, listen, there are words to describe this woman. They are not appropriate for church or anywhere else for that matter. It's why when this email went viral, some of you may even remember uh, when this was in the news, when it went viral, that lady was nicknamed the mother-in-law from hell. And let's give her a break. I mean, probably there's some legitimate concerns here. Heidi probably needed to work on some things. But after reading this, I think Miss Bourne needs to work on some things. Like holding your tongue, being kind, not playing a role that's not yours to play, and others. But what's at the core of this? What was the real intent of her criticisms? It was this. If you want to be accepted by our family, for the sake of your involvement with our family, you need to do what I think you need to do. In other words, if you want to be accepted by us, you need to do it my way. That's exactly the attitude that Jesus addresses in the disciples here in Luke chapter 9. You see, the disciples have encountered a man who has been casting out demons. Now listen, listen, we don't know that much about this guy, but all the signs from the text are that this guy is legit. Jesus doesn't say anything negative about this guy at all. In fact, it's actually very positive. So we can assume from the text that this guy, he's a believer in Jesus, and he's trying to do the work of Jesus, and he's been empowered to be able to do it. There's just one problem. You know what that problem was? He wasn't in the disciples group. He doesn't follow with us. 
He's not one of us. He doesn't use our lingo. He doesn't dress like we dress. He doesn't do it the way we do it. He doesn't know the special handshake. And so they rebuked him. They rebuked him. Now, you don't need a theology, you don't need a PhD in theology to know at least this. Demon inside a person, bad. Demon cast out of a person, good. Can we all agree on that? I mean, it's like, come on, disciples, don't you see this guy's doing a good thing? He's for the kingdom of God. He's for Jesus. But he wasn't in their group, so they tried to shut him down. And when Jesus hears of this, he's going to teach his disciples and us an attitude about what it really means to be a part of his work, about a gospel movement. And the first thing he teaches us here is that dedication does not mean you're obedient. Just because you're dedicated to something doesn't mean that you're actually obedient obedient to Christ. Look at verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Now, you need to understand, when John is telling Jesus this, no doubt, he's probably pretty proud. You have this sense where the disciples have to be thinking, man, Jesus is going to be so proud of us, he's going to give us a button. I mean, when we tell him what we've done, he's going to be like, how could I do this ministry without you? You're so amazing. The disciples have self-appointed themselves as the watchdogs of the kingdom of Christ. They have determined who's in, who's out, who's of God, who's not of God, how ministry ought to be done and how it shouldn't be done. And Jesus ought to be thankful he's got them on his side. But Jesus isn't pleased with this. It's, it's like when your kids, you remember that moment when your children, they, they like call to you or they come to you with something they're so proud of, something that they're done, they've done that they think is going to impress you, and it just totally makes a bigger mess? They think they've done something that you're going to rejoice in, but you see that they've actually done something that makes a bigger problem. That's exactly what the disciples have done. Why is that? Why is it that they think they've done something for Jesus? Come on now. Why they think they've done something for Jesus, but they've actually done something against him? It's because what they did was done out of ministerial or religious or spiritual pride. We all suffer from it. Look at verse 46. Here's the context. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child, put him by his side, and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is the greatest. Do you see The context of what happens in verse 49 and 50 is coming out of a conversation where Jesus is talking about humility. He's addressing spiritual 
arrogance in the life of the disciples, which gives us insight as to the motivation for why they rejected this man in the first place. It's spiritual pride. They, what they should have done is said, awesome, the kingdom of God is advancing. A life has just been changed. Somebody's just been set free. Man, this is incredible. But they couldn't do that. Why? Because they were blinded by spiritual pride. Their way of doing things had blinded them to the ultimate work of the ministry Jesus wanted to be done. It's like, you may have heard me talk about the the story from Greek mythology of the guy Narcissus, where we get the word narcissism. It's a story of about a guy who's walking by a stream and he looks into the water and he sees his own reflection and he's so enamored with it, he's so addicted to it that he literally cannot leave and he stays there on the bank until he dies. You see, here's what I've learned in ministry over many years, and I've learned it about my own heart as well. Look right here. The longer we follow Jesus, the more of a tendency we have to settle in just to what makes us comfortable with our group, and we're going to set, soak, and sour till the second coming, and it's almost as though we've forgotten about the mission of God. The disciples think they're loyal. But they're really only loyal to self. And their loyalty to self, above loyalty to Christ, reveals, come on, their spiritual immaturity. What the disciples are unable to do is what I fear for myself and for us, we are often unable to do. And it's what I want to call ministry triage. You ever been to the ER? How many, show of hands, how many have been to the ER? How many of you want to go to the ER? No, 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 no. If you ever go to the ER, they're going to do something what they call triage. You know what triage is? It's when they, they diagnose how serious your situation is, right? You don't treat a head wound the same way you treat a broken ankle. The broken ankle may hurt, but it's not as serious. Now, what you don't want when you go into that triage is a bad nurse, You don't want a nurse that thinks everything's a crisis, that treats the broken ankle like the head wound. In the same way, what you don't want is to be a Christian where everything's a fight. Everything, you're like Chicken Little. The kingdom of God has fallen apart over every little single disagreement. It's immature legalism. But on the other hand, in that nurse, You don't want a nurse that treats everything as insignificant, do you? You know, I know you have blood gushing out of your eye sockets and earlobes, but you'll be fine. (laughs) You don't want that nurse that's like, oh, everything's going to be fine and nothing's really a big deal and let's just hold hands and sing kumbaya. No, that's immature liberalism. Ministry triage is when you've reached a point where you're mature enough to be able to discern what really matters and what doesn't. Now, we do this theologically. Notice this graph here. When we think theologically, listen, folks, there are some things that if you do not believe, you're not a Christian. 
Not because I say you're not, but because the Bible says this is the essence of the Christian faith. If you deny the Trinity, if you deny the virgin birth, if you deny that Jesus is God, if you deny that Jesus is the only way to be right with God, that is so much the essence of Christianity. To deny it is to deny Christianity. But then there are second-level issues. I call them denominational because they tend to be the kind of issues that separate denominations. Uh, that may be beliefs on baptism or Lord's Supper or, you know, some may say that speaking in tongues should happen in the worship service. There's a variety of different issues that we would disagree on, but right here, we wouldn't look at those other people and say, you're not a Christian. We st- at least we better not, because it's not, a, it's not like a, an essence of the gospel thing. It matters, it's important, but we realize it's not a salvation issue. Well, then there's third-level issues. I call it cooperation, meaning within the same local church, you ought to be able to agree to disagree and keep on the mission of God together. If you're getting all fired up about the timing of the rapture, or how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, or did Adam have a belly button, or whatever. You got problems. Why? A wise Christian, a mature Christian can say, that's a salvation issue. That's important enough that we're going to have to disagree on this, but I still recognize you as a Christian. And you can say this issue is important, but come on, let's join hands and go. I say all that to say this, right here, right here, right here. Spiritual maturity has the ability to do ministry triage, right here. You have to have the ability to say, this is a gospel issue, this is a conviction I have, and this is a preference I'd like. But I will not, we will not put personal convictions or preferences above the gospel. Mature Christianity, unlike the disciples, is able to do ministry triage in the face of spiritual pride. That's what we see from this text. And the disciples couldn't do it. All they could see is, but you're not in my group. You're not one of us. And Jesus here, I think, teaches us that a gospel movement is marked by a focused commitment on the gospel over personal convictions and preferences, what the disciples were not doing in that moment. Look at me, look at me. Just because you're dedicated here doesn't mean you're obedient to Jesus. Just because you're dedicated to a tradition, a denomination, or whatever, doesn't mean that true loyalty is to Jesus. And what I want to say is love those other things, but just love Jesus most. To where if you lost anything but Jesus, you'd have enough. Come on. Dedication doesn't mean obedience. But here's the second thing Jesus teaches us, is that unity does not mean uniformity. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. In other words, our unity is not being the same. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, do not stop him. So there's Jesus's answer. For the one who is not against you is for you. What does Jesus say first? Let's take that phrase and break it down. Break it down now, right? Don't stop him. What's Jesus saying? 
He's saying, disciples, what you should do in that moment, you tracking with me, is put yourself aside. You see him doing it. The, the impulse is, well, he's not one of us, and, and, and I want to stop that, and, and, and I want to criticize that. But Jesus says, what you need to do is put the mission of self on hold. Don't stop him. Are you seeing a pattern here over the last few weeks in this series? Go back with me two weeks ago to Corinth. Well, I think you ought to be able to eat meat. Well, I don't think you should. I mean, after all, you got that meat. It was sold out of a pagan temple. But I'm free because I worship the one true and living God. But you shouldn't be because my conscience says you shouldn't. And what does Paul say? Get over yourself. It's about love. I'm an apostle. I have rights, but I gave up those rights so that what? I could win everybody to Jesus. That's what's most important. Go with me to last week, the Pharisees. You're doing that which is unlawful. Really? Whose rules did we break? Well, you know, the ones we made up. Oh, you mean we didn't actually break any of God's rules? We broke your rules. Well, yeah, but you just still shouldn't do it that way. Well, excuse me that the ministry of God is more important than your rules. When I see a man with a withered hand, I'm going to heal him because that's the good thing to do. And quite frankly, I want to be about doing good, not trying to be good. Jesus is my goodness. You see? I'll give you one more, and it's today's, but he's not in our group. Don't stop him. Are you following the pattern? In every single case, what got in the way of the ministry God had called His people to do was self. Which is why I've been saying over and over that a gospel movement begins with move me. And why is that? Jesus gives us the why. Look at the for in this text. Don't stop him for, so here's the reason, because the one who is not against you is for you. Listen to me, folks. Jesus, let's get this really clear. Jesus is not talking about somebody who's preaching another gospel. He's not talking about somebody who's denying Jesus. He's not talking about somebody who is disobeying the word of God. If that were the case, Jesus would have rebuked him. Jesus doesn't have any problem rebuking anybody, right? It's the issue, disciples, is your inability to see what's most important. And what you've done is you've developed an exclusive club, that'll preach, that actually hinders the work I've called you to do, which is what some people call churches. And what I'm saying is, God, may it never be here that we get so blinded by our spiritual pride that we actually miss the work of Christ. John MacArthur says it this way. I love this quote. Pride promotes exclusivity, but humility, that's the theme of the text, promotes unity. We cannot embrace those who claim to be Christ, but do not preach a true Christ. However, here it is, we must embrace all who name the name of Christ, regardless of what organization they belong to. Do you see, Berean, unity is like family. 
This was going to shock you. I'm glad you're sitting down. My kids don't always get along. I know. It amazes me too. Even pastor's kids. But their unity, you know, is not in their likeness. One's a boy, two of them are girls. Their unity is not in their similarities. Uh, Caleb loves football and video games, and my girls love to play with dolls. Their unity is not in their preferences. Audrey loves Subway, loves Subway. Like it came down out of heaven, loves Subway. My son loves Denny's. No, I'm kidding. He didn't. That, that's an inside joke if you weren't here last week. My son will eat Chinese dumplings until he turns into Kung Fu Panda. There's all kinds of differences with my children. What unites them is their birth. What unites them is the family they belong to. Brother, sister, if you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, we're on the same team. Jesus did not come to die for uniformity. He came to die to bring us together in unity. He did not break down the wall of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, to bring us together in some boring, blended body. He saved us in our differences to be one. To be one. Don't you see, disciples, if He's for us, be for Him. That's what a gospel movement does. It says, I put myself aside for the sake of something greater that is the work of Jesus. Warren Wiersbe says this. I love it. This is a great quote. To those who think their group is the only group God recognizes and blesses, they're in for a shock when they get to heaven. I, and I just, I just want to be there to watch. You know, I'm just going to watch their, their facial expression. You know why? Because I love studying church history, and I love studying the, the movement of God all around the world even today. And here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that Western English-speaking Christians are going to have one little bitty pew all the way in the back corner of heaven. Now, I'm being mostly sarcastic, but you run the numbers. It's probably true when you look at the redemptive plan of God throughout generation upon generation. And man, I can't wait to Revelation 5 to get there with different tribes and tongues and languages and people groups and skin colors. And what are we all going to do? We're going to sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And we're going to be one. So why don't we get about that now? But He's not in my group. He's not one of us. Jesus says it doesn't matter if He's for us if he's for the gospel, if he's for the ministry of Christ, be for them. So here's the question I'm asking you right here. Can you rejoice, Berean? I'm pushing you. Can you rejoice when the kingdom of God is advanced through people other than you? Can, will you rejoice when the kingdom of God is advanced in ways that wouldn't be your ways? 
Will you be like Moses when Joshua comes to him and says, hey, I need to inform you of something. You got two elders that are trying to steal your glory. You got two elders that are trying to play your role. And what is Moses' response? Why don't you just go cut their head off? No. Numbers eleven twenty nine. Here's Moses' response. Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Or like the Apostle Paul when he's in a Roman prison and they inform him that there are people trying to take advantage of his imprisonment. They're trying to steal some of his ministry. And what is Paul's response? Uh, Philippians 1.18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Or what about John the Baptist? He's got a good gig going. He's got a lot of followers after him until Jesus shows up. And then everybody's focused on Jesus and following Jesus. And what does John do? He goes over and sits in the corner and pouts. Wrong. He says, John 3.30, listen, he must become greater and I must become less. The motto of a gospel movement is if they are against Christ, we will be against them. We will love them. We will serve them. We will do ministry with them, but we will not stand with them. But if they are for Christ, if it is for the gospel, we stand together. Amen. I got five of you. Come on. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples here. Man, you, you, you've got you to believe in something bigger than you. Man, that's what I want. I want us here at Berean to believe, not in a what, but in a why. Our unity is in a why, not a what. Here's what I mean by that. What we do is going to change. Well, that makes me feel uncomfortable. Me too. Ten years from now, our what is going to change. I hope so, because I don't want us to be that narcissist guy standing at nothing but a reflection of ourselves dying. But our unity here is not in a what. It's in a why. It's in a belief about something. Let me illustrate it this way. Most of you, I came across this story in, in, in some of my reading just a, a few months ago, a story about Samuel Langley. It really struck me. Most people have never heard of Samuel Langley. In the early 20th century, he was trying to be the first one to build a flying machine. He had everything, all the resources you could want. He held a seat at Harvard. Uh, his network of friends were some of the sharpest minds of the day. The War Department gave him $50,000 to do his work, and the New York Times followed him around everywhere. But do you know what motivated Langley? He wanted to be rich and famous. He was motivated to do this by self. Doing this gets something for me. Meanwhile, a few hundred miles away, there were two brothers that I bet all of you've heard of, the Wright brothers. They didn't have the money Langley had. They didn't have the education that Langley had. They didn't have the network of friends that Langley had. 
and nobody followed them around anywhere. But December 17, 1903, the Wright brothers were the first to take flight. And here's what's interesting. Do you know why? You know what kept them going? They believed that a flying machine would change the world. They believed in something that was bigger than self. And do you know what Langley did when he found out that the Wright brothers were first to flight? He quit. He packed all this stuff up and he went home. Do you know why? Because he was committed to a what, not a why. He could have said, that's awesome. I rejoice with you. You have the same passion that I have. How can I learn from you so that I can do this as well? But once the mission of self had run its course, he went home. But the Wright brothers believed in something. All eyes right here. I, I believe in something, Brian. I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. And you know what I believe? I believe that Jesus has the power to transform lives. Do you know what I believe? I believe the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Do you know what I believe? I believe God wants to do a gospel renewal in this faith family. And if I could just speak for us by saying, Jesus, here we are. Use us. Work in us. Do something in this place that leaves a God-sized mark on the south metro and the ends of the earth. And if that means move me, move me. We, we do not want to be like the mother-in-law from hell who puts secondary things above the main thing. We want to be like the one who came down from heaven. A man who would not let the traditions of the Pharisees or the ministerial pride of the disciples or even his own personal preferences keep him from the mission of God. You remember, don't you? That night in the garden when Jesus came face to face with the mission of self, let this cup pass. That's what I want. But what did he pray? Not my will, but yours. In other words, we would do well to take it from Jesus, a man who knows firsthand that the gospel movement started with move me. Let's pray. Every head bow, every eye closed. What is God moving in you. For some of you, it's family. For some of you, it's your job. For some of you, it's participation in a faith family. But I bet all of us can think of things in our life where we're making secondary things more important than the main thing. Would you right now say, God, move me. Move me. I do ask, Lord, that that's what you do in us, and I know it's painful. I wouldn't dare think that we are somehow more spiritual than your own disciples. Meaning, all of us have areas in our life that are blinding us from the main thing. Expose those in us. 
Holy Spirit, convict us of those things and move us closer and closer to Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.